All right. This is a new thing I'm doing. It's a rapid fire exchange where I say a word and you say something back. You ready? Yep. Stethoscope. Brant. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start over. I had gotten to the point where I was literally drawing the ketamine up as we would walk in the door, you know. And it was really difficult for me to change gears from firearms, shots on target, take out a threat, to suddenly, oh wait, I'm a medic. I'm, I am the medic. Welcome to Medic Mindset. I'm Ginger Locke. I'm having the time of my life sitting down with medics one at a time and sorting through their experiences. What ends up being distilled from this process are ideas and thoughts and habits that are seemingly universal to medics. And I know they're universal because I've begun hearing from you guys, which has turned out to be the most rewarding part of this little experiment. So please keep sending me your messages. I'm on Twitter at GingerLockATX and Facebook as GingerLock. The website with show notes for each episode is medicmindset.com. I've listened to the raw audio for this episode at least 20 times. I was searching for a title and for a method to properly introduce this medic. He's a SWAT medic, but he doesn't fit neatly in the box we might have for tactical medics. For every descriptor I wanted to use, I just kept thinking, but he's so much more than that. He's a large guy, muscular, steady, stable. And one thing's for sure, he settles a room just by being in it. The rest... Just check it out for yourself. Thank you for being on the show. It's absolutely my pleasure. Talk to me about the steps of you getting into EMS, because what I know of you is you are incredibly smart. You're the kind of guy that could have picked to do anything. So why did you pick EMS? First, thanks for that. Uh, I guess I should preface by saying that, you know, I, I had multiple other careers. Uh, I was a chef for years and years, which was a very stressful job, and I quit being a chef because I wanted a less stressful job and somehow ended up in EMS, which it turns out is less stressful in a lot of ways for mm-hmm. me. So I didn't know that you had been a chef. Are you professionally trained? No, I started washing dishes when I was 14 and just worked my way up. So were you ever in charge of a kitchen as the chef? Mm-hmm. Yeah, multiple, multiples. I ran a place in, uh, in the Caribbean for a while and that was very successful and probably the most rewarding place. And then, uh, Another one that in the Caribbean that was wildly catastrophic. But. <laughs> I love it that you ran a kitchen or worked in a kitchen because so many of our students have food service backgrounds. When we're writing their resumes or when we're talking about their job skills, they write that one off. They don't think of it as being an asset to uh, healthcare. Oh man! And, and I have to quickly dispel that because they're so similar. Yeah. In fact, I was thinking about that this morning when I was listening to one of the episodes of your podcast, how lucky I was to have that service industry background Mm -hmm. uh, because it allowed me a familiarity with adaptability to, you know, changing situations, the ability to multitask under pressure, socializing with strangers. So all of those things I was lucky enough to be really familiar with when I came into this. And it was an immense asset to me and it gave me a lot more space to learn the things I needed to know about pathophysiology and pharmacology. I currently have a student that's a bartender. He's one of many bartenders that have come through our program. We do a view from the door when we go to the hospital. We'll um, sneak a peek and then we'll talk about what we saw. I would say he saw more than me. Mm. Yeah. 
he saw things I didn't see. And, I, and, and later I'm like, you were absolutely right. I didn't notice that thing sitting on the counter or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as soon as they walk in the door, you pick them out, and you're like, oh, I'm going to have to spend a long time talking to this one. (laughs) But yeah, it was a choice between being a police officer or a paramedic. I knew myself well enough at that point in my my life, because I came to EMS late, you know, I I was already in my mid-30s, and I knew myself well enough at that point to know that I was more wired to be a caretaker than I was to be a hunter. For better or worse, I think that police these days are often thrust into the roles of being hunters, even though... In my experience, many of them are caretakers, you know. And I wasn't sure that I was mentally or emotionally prepared to to deal with the alienation that police officers have to deal with. Um, That would be really hard on me, I think. So when I heard that I could become a medic and then also possibly become a tactical medic, it seemed like an ideal balance to me. I was listening to a podcast. There's a a podcaster named Tim Ferriss, and he had a a guest. I think her name was Whitney Cummings. She's a stand-up comic. Mm Mm-hmm. A successful one. So he was asking her if she could take someone from day one, they'd have no experiences stand up, how would she train them? He gave her like two months. She said, first night, I'm going to throw them up there on stage and they're going to work on stage presence because like 90% of the job is just the presence and then 10% is the actual content. Mm-hmm. And this is a hard question. And it's if someone came to you today, they have some time, right? They've got maybe two years of paramedic school. What would you tell them to do while they're in paramedic school to prepare them for being a medic? Would you send them to, you know, go work in the field, go work in food service, go work out? (laughs) Hmm. I think all of those things would be really appropriate. I think I might take an even more radical approach than that and say, go hang out with homeless people, you know, every night for two weeks. Get that sense of desperation of clinging to something. Uh, and talk to them, you know. My partner at work has a great exercise that he does with students who are obviously intimidated by strangers. He tells them to go home after after a ride out. And their homework assignment is to go somewhere like the shopping mall or, uh, and walk up to at least 20 random people and just introduce themselves and start talking, you know. And he's like, it's going to be nerve-wracking for you, but it's really, really good practice. You know? And you'll find that if you do it in such a way that you are approachable and friendly and all of that, that you'll often garner a good reaction. I wonder if the students do that. I wonder if they do too. (laughs) Yeah. I know that the ones who don't, he then makes stand up and give speeches to the entire fire station, you know? Really? Does he really (laughs) put them through this exercise? Yeah. What kind of speech? He leaves it up to them. He says, you know, you've got until your next ride out to prepare a speech on, you know, something that I don't know if he makes it medically related or what, but I love uh, that. Yeah. It's good. Because a lot of our job is talking to a group of people, you know, bystanders, family members, mm-hmm. an army of firefighters. Yeah, and, and learning how to control our own emotions so that we can impart a sense of, you know, calmness and or, you know, trust to all of those people. So you got into EMS knowing you wanted to go down the tactical route and you quickly found a tactical team uh, to join. Can you talk about your indoctrination into that aspect of EMS? Yeah, absolutely. Like any medic straight out of school, the first year was uh, was a constant nail biter, you know, jumping at the slightest indication of a possible pager tone and the constant terror that you're going to screw something up and a lot of self-analysis after every call. 
So that year, you know, was was filled with all of those things. But I was really lucky around the time that year was completed, my agency's tactical team had an opening. So I had to do what we all have to do to get on the team, which is to go through, first you have to pass a basic fitness test. In order to get on the team after that test, you have to go through uh, a very stressful day. Once you get through that, if they, you know, feel that you're appropriate, then you have to go through basic SWAT school. Which I want to go back to the day. How long is the day? You know, it's varied a few times since I got on the team. Part of what makes it really stressful is that after you've done all the fitness stuff, and a lot of people show up thinking that's all they're going to have to do, you then, without going into too much detail, have to go through a lot of scenarios based on what we actually do. And uh, and we're really lucky that we work so closely with the law enforcement departments that that we work with. A lot of those guys came out too. You know, as a medic, you know all the medics in your system, and you think, okay, you know, whatever these guys can throw at me, I can totally deal with because I know these guys, you know. But then all of a sudden, you've got, you know, 12 or 14 SWAT guys that you have never met before in your life standing there contributing to the scenarios and also analyzing everything that you're doing and trying to decide even if your mindset is appropriate. Okay, I want to talk about what you're referencing the the mindset what is the mindset uh, educate me as paramedics we're familiar with really high stress high pressure environments when you add a lot of other stress factors to that such as what we call non-permissive environments you know where you're not familiar at all with your surroundings there's a high potential of danger and you're dealing with multiple personnel doing their own roles and trying to figure out where you fit into that and then also doing your job, whether it's taking care of the officers or taking care of people that, you know, end up in the scenes that we're in. That's a lot of, a lot of things to juggle. And it's a lot to mentally prepare for, to deal with at the time, and then to take home afterwards. You know, there are a lot of medical calls in my career so far, brief as it is. I go back and go over with a fine tooth comb and, and think about all the things I could have done better or should have done and didn't. But I also spend a lot of time after SWAT calls, literally just analyzing how I moved from one structure to another and whether or not that placed myself or any of my teammates in danger. Yeah. Like an after action review, walk your brain through every single step you took. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And when you reference the team, who is the team? Don't assume that I know anything Mm because I don't. Okay. (laughs) A SWAT team is made up of how many people and how many medics? Sure. Who's there? Sure. Usually, whether it is a pre-planned mission, in other words, you know, if it's a warrant that we're going to serve at such and such time tomorrow morning, or it's something that drops unexpectedly, you know, and we all get called out for it. Usually, it's at least 10, maybe as many as 18 SWAT personnel. And that may also include negotiators and other people. Usually, we try to have at least two TAC medics. Uh, often we end up with just one. So when I say the team, that's who I'm talking about. Okay. All of those people. And a lot of times the way we do it, especially if it's a if it's a pre-planned thing, is that one of us will stay with the ambulance stage somewhere nearby and the other will go in with the team wherever we're going. And depending on the structure, you know, if it's a really big structure, we'll make entry and do all the things that the team is doing with the exception that we're not armed. If it's a smaller structure, we'll just post at the door and wait till they've cleared it because then we'll just be one more body inside. It's not enough room for that. So you are unarmed? Mm-hmm. It's something that we go back and forth on a lot. It's a very uh, uncomfortable position to be in. But on the other hand, I know there are tactical EMS 
teams in the country that have that, that are armed. We are not at this time. I think the intention is that maybe we someday will be, but mm-hmm. our administration has a lot of hesitation about that. My hesitation is not well, I think I think what it comes down to, and this is, I think, one of the most important aspects of dealing with taking on the role of a tactical medic, what it comes down to is, is remaining aware of your role. The officers that we work with, they're in that capacity of being a police officer all the time, even when they're not on duty. You know, I know these guys. I know that their minds are, you know, bent that way. That's how they do things, you know, and they mm-hmm. do it every day. So it becomes very instinctual to them on a lot of levels. The decision about whether or not to employ a weapon becomes very instinctual to them. In our tactical EMS team, you know, we compete in SWAT competitions and stuff like that. So we're all able to shoot and to do all the things that the SWAT guys can do. That doesn't necessarily mean that we are accustomed to thinking in that role every day. Right. So if we were to become armed, we would have to give a lot of thought to how that changes our mindset and whether... I mean, I'll give you an example. I remember when I was in basic SWAT school, and of course, I hadn't deployed with the teams at that point. We were doing a, a hostage rescue drill on a school bus, uh, and we were using what we call Sims guns that shoot little paint bullets. They're painful, but not hopefully, you know, hopefully unharmful. You know, it's very stressful. There's all these people in a bus. You have to run in the bus. And, and so I was very much in a SWAT role because that's what I was doing in SWAT school. And so I ran in and put shots on target, and uh, all of a sudden, the cadre who were training us said, we've got a pediatric patient down, outside, you know? And it was really difficult for me to change gears from firearms, shots on target, take out a threat, to suddenly, oh, wait, I'm a medic. I'm, I am the medic. Mm-hmm. And so that is my job now, to go take care of this this patient. And I think I think it's probably easier in some respects for, you know, people who've been in the military in a medical capacity, 18 mm-hmm. Deltas, pararescue guys, because they get more used to switching roles like that. But because we haven't been in that other role up until now, I think it would be a big thing to take on. Taking a tool out of your toolbox so you don't even have to worry about the option of using it. Right. On the other hand, there's this whole other aspect, which is that because we're unarmed, SWAT personnel have to be detailed off to hold security for us at all times. If something were to ever happen in those situations, and for some reason we didn't have security, uh, we'd be in a very delicate situation, you know. That's the argument I've heard that people make for uh, you guys to be armed, is that if the people who are protecting you become, they become injured or, or can't be a physical barrier for you, that you'd be exposed. Right. Yeah, and it's a terrifying prospect. And I could go way down the rabbit hole with this for hours, but you know, one of the things I think about is is that sometimes certain people in our society have a tendency a sort of reflexive tendency to think that force is going to solve any situation. And even I mean, obviously the best SWAT guys that I work with know better, you know, that force is is the option you want to employ last. Uh, and that if you are able to think critically through a situation, there are often multiple other avenues that you could explore rather than using force. You know, that's the whole reason we have SWAT teams, really. Say more about that. What are you saying? The whole reason we have SWAT 
teams is to quote a really bad movie <laughs> that came out uh i think back in the 90s swat was it yeah i think in the movie some guys did you know some swat guys did some bonehead stuff and and their commander afterwards was like special weapons and tactics where were the tactics gotcha you know which may be the only takeaway from that movie which would otherwise be a small murder of your time you know <laughs> uh and i think that the SWAT guys that I've been around uh, are really good at that. They're really good at planning as much as possible and and considering all options and avenues to avoid having to use force. Um, and that's something that probably doesn't get seen by you know society at large very often because they're not privy to these conversations and these right. briefings and all of that. You know, I want to sit there for a second. This mm-hmm. idea of de-escalating something. Um, because that is something medics have to do. I would I'd venture to say it, it could come up every shift where you've got an angry patient or bystander or family member who's experiencing some level of anger. Because I've watched agitated patients in the hospital be either de-escalated or escalated by the providers around them. I wasn't formally trained in some really great tactics. Some simple things. I've watched nurses... I mean, every, every patient's different, but they will talk to the patient but not look them square in the eyes really hard. Mm-hmm. They'll kind of submit a little bit with their eyes, but their hands are on and talking to them. So there's some active things going on, but there are also these passive, almost anthropological maneuvers they do. Yeah, that's very primal. You know, Any part of your background that you can help give insight for a, a paramedic student, new medic, or somebody that wants to get better at de-escalating agitated patients? Boy, that's... Uh... You know, I've ridden that roller coaster for sure yeah. and uh, and gone at it both ways. In fact, only a few months ago, my partner confronted me. We'd had a whole series of psych calls and, and I had gotten to the point where I was literally drawing the ketamine up as we would walk in the door, you know, like, so, yeah. Uh, and he confronted me about it a little bit. He was like, can I just talk to him for five or 10 minutes first? You know, <laughs> and I would say like, okay, you know, but I'm right here. <laughs> And I should point out that, you know, especially in the case of, of psych patients, you know, people with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, et cetera, I hate having to sedate and or chemically restrain those patients. I know that they're already dealing with things that I can't even possibly comprehend. It often becomes a better option than, for instance, you know, handcuffs and being piled up on by other people. And I started my paramedic career very much with the intention of like, I'm just going to talk to everybody, right. you know? Like, right. I love everybody. We got this. You know, we can solve any problem. Sure. Uh, and then hit that point when I was like drawing up the ketamine mm-hmm. as I walk in the door. And now I'm trying to find that balance between the two, you know, where <clears throat> I'm getting, I hope, better at gauging the threshold for combativeness and trying to either, you know, trying to use everything I can to de-escalate before that point and then not being too hesitant once that point is reached yeah. to go ahead and do that. I mean, I always say that one of the most important things about being a paramedic is to, is to take your shoes off at the door. Uh, obviously, don't take your shoes off at the door because who knows where you're going to be stepping in. But in a metaphorical sense, the the sense of respect for other people, for their space, uh, whether that's a physical space or an emotional space that they inhabit. Not only to be able to take your shoes off, but then to try and feel what it would be like to be in somebody else's, especially with these patients who are in those really distressed places. Um, That is something that can only come with getting outside your own comfort zone. 
whatever is familiar to you and makes you feel warm and fuzzy and makes you feel like you're in control. If you're able to either through some mental exercise or through an activity or through a field trip, do something to break out of that and try and imagine what it's like for somebody else to be in that other place that's uncomfortable to you. Imagine what it's like for them to be there all the time, you know, and then to think of what you would want to hear if you were in that uncomfortable place, you know, and I, I'm not saying that I mean, that's a, a sort of dime store philosophy response to the question, but I think, I think that dynamic is the only way that you can approach those people with any sense of integrity. It's not wrong to play a role, you know, sometimes you have to play a role in our job in order to, you know, facilitate somebody's well-being. It's something we all do all the time. In the case of someone who's dealing with psychological or emotional problems, there has to be an element of sincerity to playing that role. And that sincerity won't come unless you've been uncomfortable yourself. That feels really true. That's, that's, those are some true words. Yeah. Thanks. I don't think any patient in that situation expects you to understand them. I think they'd be angry if you tried to imply that you do. I actually ran a call, you know, we tried the talking thing for over an hour and, and I ended up poking the bear a little bit, you mm-hmm. know, and we ended up in a chemical restraint situation. Uh, and I felt really bad about it, you know, but I also recognized that we didn't have a lot of other options at that time. And I ran another call two weeks later that was an MVC and it was the same guy. And I was really trepidatious rolling up to their car. I was like, first, are you guys okay? You know, and they were like, yeah, we're okay, you know. And I said, well, I don't know if you remember me, but I met you a couple weeks ago. And his mom said, yeah, I just went and got him out of, you know, the facility. We were on our way home and got into this fender bender. And I said, well, you know, you look really good, man. And he, and he was like, man, thank you so much. And I don't know. I think he was aware that there was no, certainly no malice in what I did. If only we could always see them after they get a little healing. You know, we catch people in their moments. They're in a moment. Sometimes. Sometimes it's a chronic, you know, uh, psychological condition. But sometimes we catch people in moments. Yeah. It's a snapshot. And they're such, they're much more complex people than that. Yeah. I'm sure we could solve a lot of road rage problems if we could could all just get back together later and be like, hey, you remember when you cut me off? And I was feeling this. What were you feeling? Okay. We're cool now. Right. (laughs) You know. I want to go back to you being embedded with the SWAT team. And I want to talk about, well, you said you're unarmed, so there's not the opportunity for you to neutralize a threat, to kill someone. Well, there's plenty of opportunities for me to kill someone, but it all involves a lot of paperwork and possibly my medical license. So, <laughs> Right. Your mission going in is not to neutralize the threat. Right. Can you say what your mission is? And this is the part that I think gets, gets tricky for anyone in a medical role in the tactical environment. Your mandate, as it always is in EMS, is to take care of everybody who needs help. Um, and sometimes, even in... You know, regular EMS, we're all f- familiar at least with the concept, if not having experienced those calls when it's somebody that you really don't want to take care of for some reason. You know, whether they're the drunk driver who caused the accident that killed, you know, kids or, you know, something along those lines. But we're still obligated to do so. Hopefully, would have a hard time living with ourselves if we didn't. That certainly becomes exacerbated in that tactical role. Because 
I think some people think that we're just there for the officers. Um, and that perception is probably reinforced by the fact that we look just like the officers, except we don't have a gun on, you know, but we're not just there for them. We're also there for the suspect and we're certainly there for any potential innocents that are caught up in whatever's going on there. And I've had some, some very awkward and uncomfortable experiences uh, attempting to in some way assist at least, you know, emotionally with people who are caught up in somebody else's drama that has elicited a SWAT response. Because in that role, we look like cops, even if we say, you know, I'm, I'm the medic, you know, we're still going to be perceived as part of that team. And, and we are part of that team, you know, there's a whole other aspect to that, that I can talk about with you if you want. Um, we'll I, I want to hear it all. Yeah. So we end up in these situations, you know, where we're, we're dealing with that same sense of alienation to some extent that the cops deal with all the time, you know, uh, which you know, really makes me empathic towards them. For right. that. And then we're also, you know, dealing with situations where we may feel a lot of anger and, and maybe judgment, uh, but we still have to do our jobs. So there's that aspect of it. And then the other aspect of it is that, you know, you are there for your officers and, and you go into some really stressful situations with these guys. And so you see them dealing with the stress of their jobs all the time. And you worry about them mm-hmm. all the time. Do you worry about them getting physically injured on their job? Or you worry about them, their mental health or all of it? Or Both, unquestionably, yeah. yeah. You know, it, <clears throat> I, uh, I've had some rough calls since I graduated school and all that uh, give me a second yeah, yeah. cry away and then we can either <laughs> we can uh, leave it or not oh, i got no issues with it uh so uh, yeah i've had some rough calls you know i've had pediatric arrests and you know various others i've had you know domestic abuse cases that were very distressing to deal with Um, and I've, you know, cried a little bit here and there for some of them. Uh, and I've also surprised myself a lot by not crying at some of them when I thought I should, but I dealt with, uh, a line of duty death for a police officer. I was the the responding medic and it wasn't a SWAT call. It was something else. Um, and I knew right away there was nothing we could do, but we did everything we could and uh i wasn't prepared at all you know i i think uh i think i held it together really well all the way through the handoff and everything and then lost it in the bathroom at the hospital and i came out to find uh a couple I came out to find a couple of good friends of mine who were also co-workers swabbing the back of my ambulance out because there was so much blood. You know, and I thought, okay, I'm definitely going to need some help after this. But even then, I wasn't prepared to, to walk that road even 
briefly with that officer's co-workers and his family um, because you know we because we were there and it was an area that we work in all the time so we knew several of the officers that work with him really well and uh, we were at the funeral and all of that and and it was you know I'd, I'd obviously dealt with lots of deaths in my career by that point you know lots of dead on scene where I had to console family members and help them in whatever way I could lots of arrests that you know we weren't able to get them back but this was the first time that I had to walk down that grieving process with the people connected to that person it was really a much heavier weight than I thought it was going to be you know and of course we went through you know our critical incident debriefing processes and and uh you know we're lucky to work in a really supportive agency that offers us a lot of resources. Um, and as is typical of me in, in some cases, uh, I was absolutely intent on making use of those resources. And then weeks and weeks would go by and months and months would go by and, and I still haven't. And now, you know, now sometimes I find myself, you know, tearing up at the silliest shit, you know, just really tiny things. And uh, so, you know, I, I tell students, I warn them, I guess, when they show up that, uh, you know, I'm not a sympathetic puker. I can deal with feces just fine. Um, if somebody starts crying, there's a good chance I will too. So, so. And that's new or that's always been the case? Well, it's always been the case to some extent, but... I think I think it's just a, a lot closer to that threshold than it ever was before, you know? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's because I haven't, you know, I, I mean, I talk about it with my wife because she's awesome and, you know, enormously supportive. Um, but I haven't talked about it in an objective setting with anybody. And I think that's, I think that's my bad. Absolutely. You know, it's my bad to myself and it's my bad to people who might deal with my fallout. So, I mean, if there's anything that anybody listening to this might garner from it, it's that you shouldn't stint yourself in that way. Mm-hmm. You know? Is it possible that the tearing up more easily is a positive side effect? It's possible. Sure. You know, and I, I mean, I guess I would be really a lot more worried about me if I wasn't, you know. Yeah. My mom who's, you know, I've spent most of my life growing up with my mother and, uh, you know, my father's great too, but I wouldn't, you know, I didn't live in his house most of the time. And she's always been big on, you know, talking through things, you know, and it may be a little too much sometimes. And she has this tendency now to call me up every couple of weeks and without really even talking about anything else going like, so you okay. And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm fine, mom. It's, no big deal. We had two calls yesterday. I slept all night. I'm fine. She's like, okay. I mean, you just seemed a little short lately. Uh-huh. And I'm always like, well, did I just seem a little short or was I just a little short? Cause my mom likes to talk a little too much. You know, I'm never really sure. Yeah. Well, you, um, have, you have to look at that though. Right. That and and I'm, I mean, I'm immensely grateful to her. The point of that story, other than processes that we go through as medics is also that, you know, in the, in the, capacity of working closely with law enforcement officers you're 
constantly hyper aware of both the physical danger that they're in, but you're also seeing them after they run really bad calls or uh, sometimes after they've had to use lethal force on someone. Um, and I mean, I, I can tell anybody who would ask that that's not an easy thing for anybody to yeah. go through. As you're describing this process of concern for law enforcement, it feels so familiar because it's the level of concern I have for paramedic students. It also makes me tear up uh, if I think about it too hard. And I'm wondering, you know, do do the professors in the automotive department, you know, <laughs> you know what if Jimmy just never gets the hang of that carburetor, you know? Um, no, the fact is that that our field is is riddled with with dangers and hazards, emotional and physical, you know, and and you know when I talk about my my concern for my law enforcement coworkers, you know, that of course also applies to all of my EMS coworkers and you know, and God, my poor coworkers who work in dispatch, you know, those guys get forgotten all the time and that's one of the most emotionally grueling jobs I can think of. Yeah, for sure. They do get forgotten. Yeah. You know, there's not a whole lot of other fields that you could go into that would engender in in a civilian world that would engender the need to be so alert to long-term damage, mm -hmm. whether physical or mental. What's interesting is, as students, I don't get many complaints from them about nightmares and symptoms of PTSD, but as graduates do, and I think it's because it's a, a bit of a cumulative effect. I think it takes a little time. It's odd. The only nightmares I ever have these days are still about restaurants, you know? <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, it's always, it's always about, like, you know, finding myself at some walk-in chef gig where the diners are all sitting down and I have no idea what's on the menu and, you know, I'm wearing an apron and nothing else, which normally I'm comfortable with, but <laughs> in my dreams, it's always a little traumatic, you know, it's... No, no bad EMS dreams? No, you know, I don't, I don't think I have had any bad EMS dreams. Me neither. Yeah? I've had bad teaching dreams. Yeah. Or I'm late to class. Yeah, no, that makes perfect, perfect sense But no EMS dreams either. Yeah. You know, and I, I don't know if it's... Because we're so alert to those hazards that our brain, I mean, maybe there's a whole locked trunk somewhere in my brain where they've just filed all that EMS stuff, you know, and yeah. at some point it's going to come out in a really, I don't know, hopefully artistic and creative way. Mm -hmm. But uh, <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, it doesn't come out in that way. Hmm. All right. This is a new thing I'm doing. It's a rapid fire exchange where I say a word and you say something back. You ready? Yep. Stethoscope. Brant. <laughs> Let's start over. Okay. Okay. Type of stethoscope. Type of stethoscope. Lippman. Type of boots. Uh, Salomon. Huh. Hmm. Type, type of monitor. Phillips. Have you ever called in sick to work for a mental health day? Absolutely. What type of phone do you have? Uh, a cellular. Asshole. <laughs> no, I use an. You don't have a bat phone. No, I use an. I use an iPhone now, but you know, I'm not addicted to it. Why are you being so reactive to that question? <laughs> <laughs> because I resent my iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> Do you look at axis deviation on twelve leads? Ever? No, not really. Have you ever fallen down on a call? Lost your footing? No. 
Have you ever had a patient die in front of you? Yes. You ever done a chest dart? No. Do you listen to heart tones? No. Have you ever heard of the Code Green campaign? Heard of it. Not familiar. Do you watch Netflix? Yeah. What do you watch? Most recently, Stranger Things and Luke Cage. I know what Stranger Things is. I don't know what Luke Cage is. It's one of their new, based on a comic book series. Oh, cool. Yeah. Takes place all in Harlem. It's good. Last book you read? Tana French's uh, suspense novel, The Trespassers. And then right before that, I read Sebastian Younger's book, Tribe. It's a good one. Yeah. So do you use a, a Kindle or do you use paperbacks or actual paper? Man. So, you know, I grew up with a, a parent who's an author. We literally fetishized books mm-hmm. in my house. And uh, it was really kind of sacrilegious to me to consider e-readers for a long time, but I couldn't possibly give it up now. A book that you'd recommend to a paramedic student? Man, you know, probably any of Atul Gawande's books, but Being Mortal, I think, is a really important one for anyone in the healthcare industry in America to read. I know what I wanted to ask you. It's funny, I haven't already asked, because this is one of my more burning questions. Oh, good. No, I'm excited. Ask away. This is what other people would be curious, like just your average civilian, I think, would want to know the answer to this. So try to be as honest as possible. Okay. I think there are a lot of people that would that wonder about this. I got to take this one seriously. <laughs> She's so old and sweet. <laughs> She's extremely sweet. She has some spaniel in her? Yeah, uh, Border Collie and Springer Spaniel yeah. and really bad breath. She's like 13 or 14. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. She's going blind, going, she can't hear it. She can't hear shit. <laughs> okay, so here comes the big whopper. Okay. And I know you've I know you've been asked before this so I hope the question's not offensive. You really have to work hard. I'm giving this I'm giving this so much preface. This better be like <sighs> We talked for hours. This one was an amazing one, and I could not make myself delete one bit of it. So I broke it into two parts. Uh, So stand by. He will be back. And then we graduate, you know, and we go off and we become terrified paramedics in the first couple years on our truck. And we're like, oh, God, I'm going to, you know, royally screw this at any moment. And, uh, and then, you know, your third and fourth year comes along and, and you're starting to feel better. And then your fifth and sixth year comes along and you're starting to feel like, man, you've, you've actually got this kind of wired, you know. And then you kill somebody. 